This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit AmericanVision.org to purchase this book or to read other articles. The Bounds of Love An Introduction to God's Law of Liberty Copyright 2016 Published by American Vision Incorporated The Bounds of Love by Dr. Joel McDermott Preface While there are scores of volumes on God's law, quote, theonomy, unquote, already, and even a couple of introductory level works, a new one is in order. With this book, I hope to address a few simple but serious needs. Popular demand is one, but others pertain to perennially nagging questions. First, there is simply a generation of new and young disciples practically demanding that I write this work. This alone would motivation me enough to write it. The particular nature of this demand, however, bears recurring inquiries that intensify the drive. In some cases, a reader merely desires to know more, while reading any of the various volumes already written could satisfy the desire in large part. It often comes in the form of questions that even our most prolific and profound writers simply have not directly or adequately addressed. This observation is not to take anything away from them or to diminish their crucial and foundational contributions. It is merely to acknowledge what all of us have always admitted. Much work remains. While we have proven the continuing validity of God's law in general, tough questions over many specifics have always remained. Answering this demand meant forcing myself to address those tough questions head-on, to make my best attempt to fill some of the remaining voids, and to offer both clarifications and important corrections in the process. The introductory reader should therefore come away from this book with some basic questions answered, as well as some of the most difficult questions addressed, if not settled. From there, they will be able to tackle the great body of work from others and perhaps add to it. One more word regarding the relationship of this book to the existing body of theonomic writing I have liberally used in everything but directly quoted from R.J. Rushdooney, Greg Bonson, Gary North, James B. Jordan, and others. In some places, whole sections are dependent upon the works of these others. I have also relied upon a few theological and historical works, not from theonomic writers. In an effort to keep the reading format of this introduction as simple as possible, I have decided not to footnote or endnote much. I did not wish to comprise this contribution of multiple series of quotations from others, but to base it simply upon Scripture as much as possible. I think I have largely succeeded in this goal with the necessary exception of the historical review in chapter 7, where I have footnoted the various historical figures I have cited. As far as the rest, you can read my acknowledgments and comments on the books to which I am indebted in the bibliographical essay at the end. The old line about standing on the shoulders of giants applies here, like everywhere else, and they deserve giant credit. Finally, Important discoveries in this study have led me to revise my views on a couple of points. Long-time students of theonomy, especially, will be keen to observe. 
Dr. Joel McDermott. American Vision, Powder Springs, Georgia, February 2016. Introduction The word, quote, theonomy, unquote, comes from two Greek words, theos, God, and nomos, law. Together, these words simply mean, quote, God's law, unquote. Since every Christian has some view of the role of God's standards for living, every Christian believes in, quote, theonomy, unquote, in some way. The label, quote, theonomy, unquote, however, has some to describe a particular doctrine of the role of God's law that includes the application of aspects of Old Testament law to all of life, including the social realm and civil government. Those who hold to this view are properly called, quote, theonomist, unquote. This book teaches the perspective of this more specific, quote, all of life, unquote, view, love and law. The Christian should never dismiss Scripture's comprehensive witness to the greatness, goodness, and justice of God's law. The psalmist declares this general truth over and over. Just a few instances say things like, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalms 119.97 Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Psalms 119.142 The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Psalms 19.9 Examples like this could be multiplied. Even in the New Testament, where Paul teaches that we are no longer, quote, under the law, unquote, and freed from the curse of the law, he nevertheless also adds that the law is, quote, holy and righteous and good, unquote, Romans seven twelve. He follows, quote, I agree with the law that it is good, unquote, Romans seven sixteen, and, quote, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Unquote. Romans seven eighteen. The problem is not with the law itself, but with our sinful selves who cannot keep it. Quote, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Unquote. Romans seven fourteen. Quote, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Unquote. Romans 8, 7. The Christian has a different mindset, however. Quote, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Unquote. Romans 8, 9. Considering what he has just said about the law, what should this difference of mindset tell you about the Christian's orientation to the law? The standard for spirit-led Christian living, Paul teaches, is that of love. It is here where the tieback to the law of God is explicit, although often unacknowledged. Later in the same epistle, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, quote, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. You shall not covet, unquote. and any other commandment are summed up in this word, quote, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Unquote. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. 
Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 13, 8-10 Love is not contrary to the law. Love is the fulfillment of it. Love is not a new commandment. Love is the summary of, quote, any other commandment, unquote, God has given. Christians must simply arrive at the mindset that when God calls us to the standard of, quote, love, unquote, He is calling us to obey the law He has already published and taught us in our hearts. Jeremiah 33, Hebrews 8 and 10. The Summary of the Law Consider just how explicitly that last sentiment is taught in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. The best place to see it is when Jesus was questioned about the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, 37-40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Quote, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Unquote. And he said to him, quote, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Unquote. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second greatest is to love your neighbor. While sometimes misunderstood as new commandments, these are actually taken directly from the Old Testament law itself. The first of these commandments is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4. The second is found in Leviticus 19, 18. Both come from the Mosaic law, and the heart of both is love. But note that Jesus says all the rest of the law and the prophets depends, literally, quote, hangs, unquote, upon the love of God and the love of neighbor. In short, Paul was teaching the same thing in Romans 13 as Jesus teaches here. Love fulfills the law in every commandment. It should not be difficult to discern that in this case, the opposite relationship must be true. If you wish to pursue love, you must abide by the law of God. Love is not an emotion, as our culture routinely portrays it, and we often think as well. Love is a standard of action. If you wish to know the definitions and objective standards of what it means, quote, to love, unquote, you will need to read the law. What is loving and what is not loving will be defined there. There you will find the divinely revealed boundaries of the actions and reactions of love. This applies in civil law as well. For example, is it loving to allow a murderer to run free in society? No. Then what penalty should they bear that could be called, quote, loving, unquote? The Bible gives an objective standard. What about a thief? Would it be loving to allow a thief to go unpunished? No. But would it be loving to give a petty thief the death penalty? No. The objective standard of love must meet both the victim and the criminal properly, else we fail short of the standard of love. He who loves will be understood to do so only as far as he is in accord with God's revealed law, for God's commandments are the substance of love. 
This is the exact lesson Jesus taught his disciples during his upper room discourse, John 14 through 16. He said, quote, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, unquote. John 14, 15. He repeats it. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, quote, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Unquote. Jesus answered him, quote, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John fourteen twenty one through 24 He repeats the lesson. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. John fifteen nine through 14 The author of this gospel reiterates the same teaching in his later epistle. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 2-3 So we can see that the love is not a new law or a replacement for the law. It is nothing more than a summary of the law. To love God means to obey His commandments. To love neighbor means to treat them according to God's revealed law, the law and the new covenant. In the light of this truth about love and the law, it is not surprising to see both feature in God's reasoning for the new covenant itself. It was prophesied by Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, quote, Know the Lord, unquote. for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Emphasis added. The author of the book of Hebrews quotes this passage twice to support his argument that the old covenant was passing away and the new one had arrived in Christ. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
for he finds fault with them when he says, quote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, quote, Know the Lord, unquote. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. Emphasis added. The same epistle quotes the same passage directly again in Hebrews 10, 15 through 18. In both cases, the phrase, quote, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, unquote, appears. It is clear that at the heart of the new covenant is a new law, or no law, but a new mode of administering the same law of God among his people. This does not mean certain aspects of it do not change, and we will discuss this later. But it does make clear that the law in general continues into the new covenant. The validity of the holy, just, spiritual, and good law of God, therefore, remains into eternity. It is our job to pursue that law of love to the glory of God in every area of life. Saved by grace for good works. The Theonomists all know and agree that no one can be saved by works or by keeping God's law. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a pure gift of God. It is not of man's works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8-9 To God alone shall be all the glory. Nevertheless, too many people who quote Ephesians 2, 8-9 fail to go on and quote verse 10. Quote, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Unquote. Scripture teaches that we are not saved by works, but the same passage of Scripture teaches us that we are saved for good works. So there is no question that good works have a necessary role in the life of the believer. That role may not be as necessary for salvation but it is still necessary as a result of salvation. Uses of the Law Most Christians agree that God's law reveals to us His standards for righteousness. Most would agree on certain uses of this law. First, we would agree that God's righteous standards show us why we need Christ. We can never measure up to His perfect standard. In this aspect, His law convicts us as hopeless sinners, and we despair of any ability or merit on our own part to escape damnation. 
This use of the law should drive us to Christ alone, seeking our salvation. Since the law teaches us our need for Christ and leads us to Him in this way, it is usually referred to as the, quote, pedagogical, unquote, use of the law. Most Christians also agree that the law provides a standard by which to restrain evil in society. Various agencies, including everything from personal relationships, advice of elders and parents, schools, businesses, social customs, and civil governments, should work together to curtail expressions of evil and promote goodness. We see this use of the law most readily in the role of the civil authorities revealed in Romans 13. Quote, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Unquote. Romans 13, 3 through 4. This is God's minister, and he must execute God's wrath. This mandates God's standard, then, as well. We call this use of the law the, quote, political, unquote, or, quote, civil, unquote, use, because its function is that of maintaining civility in society. Note a couple of things in regard to the civil use of the law. First, this use pertains to the external behavior only. It has no reference, generally, to justification by faith or our salvation. It is merely a standard of behavior for all people. As such, secondly, this use of the law applies to unbelievers as well as believers. All, regardless of faith or not, are expected to behave according to this standard, and civil authorities are ordained of God to enforce certain external standards on all people alike. A third use of the law is accepted throughout the world of Reformed theology, including most confessional Baptists, but not among most Lutherans, among others. This use is called, quote, normative, unquote, or, quote, didactic, unquote, meaning, quote, instructive, unquote, and refers to the use of the law as a pattern of good works for righteous behavior which the redeemed Christian should follow. Abiding Standards The teaching of theonomy agrees with and promotes all three of the traditionally accepted uses of the law, though is most notable in regard to the civil use. Our view appears most distinctly in the beliefs that Scripture reveals standards by which the civil magistrate is bound to perform his task that these standards are revealed primarily in Mosaic judicial law and that they remain applicable for civil magistrates today. The Theonomists contend that this view should not be a point of controversy. After all, it is an argument based upon scriptural standards, not man's. It is just this type of standard upon which we all agree in regard to the other uses of the law. In regard to the law as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, we look to God's revealed law, including Mosaic law. In regard to moral standards for Christian life and ethics, 
we look to God's revealed law, including Mosaic law. But then, in regard to standards for civil and political ethics, most theologians depart from the revealed standards and argue that human standards or some other standards, quote, nature, unquote, are adequate. But not only is this argument a departure from the pattern accepted in the other uses of the law, it is also itself not found in Scripture. It is utterly devoid of scriptural root or directive. New Testament Mandate What then does the Bible say about the civil use of the law? The easiest place to see the abiding validity of God's Old Testament law is in its civil and judicial standards is in 1 Timothy 1. Here, Paul warns Timothy against false, quote, teachers of the law, unquote, and instructs him in regard to the proper use of the law. Here's what he says. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 1 Timothy 1, 3-11 Let's break this down into several of its key points. First, Paul is promoting, quote, the stewardship from God that is by faith, unquote. The word for, quote, stewardship, unquote, verse 4, here is okonomia, from which we get our words, quote, economy, unquote, and, quote, economics, unquote. It literally translates as, quote, law of the house, unquote. It is a term of governance, I actually prefer the NASB here, which translates the word as, quote, administration, unquote. This is a passage in which Paul is contrasting the frivolous, superstitious use of the law against that use of it which accords with the government of God, which we are to obey, quote, by faith, unquote. Second, Paul contrasts those who want to be, quote, teachers of the law, unquote but do not understand what they are talking about with the proper use of the law. He is not arguing against the teaching or use of the law in itself, but against those who want to do so in a way contrary to the law and the gospel. To this end, Paul affirms that the law is in fact, quote, good, unquote, but only, quote, if one uses it lawfully, unquote. 
It may sound funny for someone to say that the right way to use the law is, quote, lawfully, unquote, and just to be sure, the Greek contains the exact same redundancy, nomos, law, must be used nomomos, lawfully. It sounds like a circular argument, but that is just Paul's point. There is only one standard by which we can interpret God's word, and that is God's word. So in order to understand God's law, we need to read and understand God's law, in this case as opposed to, quote, myths, unquote, and, quote, genealogies, unquote, but also as opposed to man's laws, nature's laws, or anyone else's laws. There is no neutrality in this universe. We will conform either to God's law or to someone else's law. Only God is the ultimate authority. The scriptures say that, quote, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, unquote. Hebrews 6:13. The same is true with regard to his law. There is no other standard by which to appeal in order to understand and apply his law. Only his law is authoritative. This means first that we should read the law for what it actually says. Many people condemn God's law based on misunderstandings of it. This problem can often be remedied by merely reading what the law actually says. Some people fear it for irrational reasons. Some people dismiss it because they think the Old Testament was harsh and cruel, while the New Testament is loving and forgiving. In fact, this view is not only incorrect according to Scripture, but was promoted by a heretic named Marcion, who denied the authority of most of the Bible, including half of the New Testament. Because of this view of the Old Testament, it was condemned by the church as a heresy way back in the 3rd century. Instead, those who would use the law lawfully, as Paul instructs, must read the law itself, read what it actually teaches, and read all of it in the context of all of Scripture together. Third, Paul teaches here that the law applies not only as a guide for the life of believers, but as a rule outside the church. He says specifically that the law, in this sense, quote, is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Unquote. Hebrews 6, 9. This verse confirms the, quote, civil, unquote, use of the law mentioned above, the use it has for restraining evil in society. Here we must repeat that the use of the law is for the lawless, ungodly, and sinners, people outside the church. We must also remember that most Christians accept this use of the law. It is not a controversial distinctive of theonomy. Many critics object to theonomy and modern civil law by arguing something like, quote, you can't impose biblical laws on an unbelieving people, unquote. Yet this is not only exactly how Paul says the law applies in this verse, but for hundreds of years, most Christians have not objected to the very use of the law. Yet when theonomists say that the standards of that law are revealed in Scripture, some critics apparently forget that they themselves believe that God's law, in general, 
applies outside the church in this way. Theonomists simply note that even the content of the law appears in this passage as well, the very next thing. Fourth, therefore, Paul cites the civil and judicial sections of Mosaic law here. We will discuss categories of biblical law in more detail later. For now, we simply note that Paul does not confine himself to the Ten Commandments or the, quote, love, unquote, commandments. He specifically cites from that portion of the law which is most often dismissed today. The judicial, quote, case, unquote, laws that follow after the Ten Commandments as well as points within Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In addition to references to murder and lies, which are obviously drawn directly from the Ten Commandments, Paul also specifically cites, among others, quote, those who strike their fathers and mothers, unquote, quote, men who practice homosexuality, unquote, quote, enslavers, unquote, and, quote, perjurers, unquote. Striking appearance appears in Exodus 21:15. Likewise, quote, enslavers, unquote, is a reference to the very next verse in Exodus which prohibits kidnapping and slave trading. Both of these laws are considered to be part of the civil and judicial law of Israel. They are case examples of how the Ten Commandments apply in the realm of civil government. Paul is citing them here as the proper use of the law, including outside the church in the New Testament. Similarly, the reference to, quote, men who practice homosexuality, unquote, comes from Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. The latter of these two passages makes clear that this is also a civil law because it prescribed the death penalty, the role of the civil magistrate. In the same way, quote, perjury, unquote, is a reference to Deuteronomy 19.16-19. This law designates that false witness in a court case, quote, perjury, unquote, is a serious crime and specifies the just punishment of it. Whatever punishment would have fallen upon the accused is to be imposed upon the false witness. So with just a little Bible study, we can see that Paul's, quote, lawful, unquote, use of the law includes content from that part of the Mosaic law which pertains to civil government. It is no wonder, then, that we see the author of Hebrews stating that Mosaic law, quote, proved to be reliable, unquote, that by it, quote, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, unquote, and that we should therefore, quote, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we should drift away from it, unquote. Hebrews 2, 1 through 2. It is only here that we see just punishments delivered by God Himself. Fifth, Paul closes this brief discussion of the lawful use of the law by saying it is, quote, in accordance with the gospel, unquote. 1 Timothy 1, 11. Far too often, any mention of the law in the Christian life at all, let alone specific reference to Old Testament judicial law, is dismissed quickly with sayings like, quote, We're not under law, but grace, unquote, or, quote, That's law, not gospel, unquote. 
Here it is unavoidably clear that Paul teaches that the proper use of the law is in accordance with the gospel, not separate from it or opposed to it. We can see the same accord in Christ's great commission to his disciples, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. He not only commanded them to make disciples and baptize them, but also to teach them, quote, to observe all that I have commanded you, unquote. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. While the preaching of the gospel is the heart and soul of the Great Commission, the enduring teaching of God's commandments and obedience to them is just as necessary and obligatory to it. So, what does 1 Timothy 1, 3-11 reveal to us? Paul teaches that we should avoid aberrant views of the law and instead seek to obey the administration of God. This administration involves the lawful use of the law. This lawful use applies outside of the church, includes civil government, and follows the statutes for civil government revealed in Mosaic law. Finally, this use of the law is in sweet accord with the gospel itself. This is the distinctive teaching of theonomy in a nutshell. As you can see, it is simply straight biblical teaching. Conclusion The New Testament teaching on God's law, therefore, is that love is the highest of Christian virtues. It is the greatest of the commandments of the law itself. Love is the law upon which all other law depends. It is the summary of the law. Since it is a summary, then in order to understand the details and nuances of the law of love, we must look back to the nuances and applications of the detail of the law in the law itself. This law is at the heart of the new covenant, the heart of Jesus' teaching to his disciples, the heart of the disciples' teaching in their epistles, and the heart of the Great Commission. This perfect law applies not only in Christian life and Christian ethics, but outside the church as well. The lawful use of the law is not only to lead us to Christ for salvation and to direct the Christian in holiness and righteousness but also to provide standards of justice in the civil realm, even among believers. With this basic background, we are now in a position to start talking about theological definitions. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.